You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Artificial intelligence is changing the way we talk, live, and work, and it's touted as a generational shift in our relationship with technology. All right, last week, the artificial intelligence company OpenAI unveiled ChatGPT4, the AI language tool that is fascinating and frightening people around the world. These powerful and unprecedented tools are making many people uneasy about the future of automation. You can make millions or billions of pieces of misinformation a day with whatever your own alternative set of facts are. It's incredibly plausible. It has references and data and so forth. It looks really real. And most humans aren't going to be able to tell the difference. AI poses a threat to our notion of what's true, but it also threatens to take our jobs. Maybe you've been thinking about your own job and wondering whether AI might replace you and what you could do to stop it. It may surprise you, but you have distant allies in the fight. The real Luddites were, of course, cloth workers who recognized the ways that technology was being used against them and and fought back. It might seem counterintuitive that a machine that spins cotton or weaves cloth could match the sort of dread that artificial intelligence produces, but maybe our response to technology today can find some guidance in early 1800s England. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, we transport ourselves to a 19th century textile factory to find out how workers responded to the new age of automation. How should we respond? Get organized? Fight back? Would taking a sledgehammer to our laptops give us job security? This episode is Tech in Check. At first glance, 21st century companies in Silicon Valley like OpenAI or Baidu in China seem worlds away from 19th century England, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. A language processing tool like ChatGPT may seem disembodied from physical reality, while the mills and cotton spinners of 200 years ago that kicked our material age into high gear were machines churning out tactile goods. They seem like unrelated revolutions. But they are similar. In both cases, automation is replacing human labor in a fundamental way. Whether it's AI-driven chat GPT writing movie scripts 
or the spinning jenny turning cotton into thread, a machine has taken the place of a human. And that comes at the cost of losing generations of expertise and a way of life. Consider that, just as today some people enjoy the convenience of working from home, 19th century cotton weavers had their looms in their homes, where they combined labor with care for their families. We'll meet a group of those cloth workers, the Luddites, and hear about their resistance to being displaced 200 years ago. But first, let's set the scene. Their world may feel like ancient history, but the upheaval in rural England in the early 1800s will feel surprisingly familiar. It is described by Los Angeles Time tech columnist Brian Merchant in his book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. It was a time when humans were slowly and then more quickly taken out of the manufacturing loop, a time when factories first gave the task of turning fibers into fabrics over to machines. It was sort of, you know, what we would call the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution began with the development largely of machinery that would sort of what we would today call automate or mechanize the the cloth trade. These machines were used in various facets of the cloth trade. So some were automating the production of stockings, say, of yarn, or the finishing of wool, or the smoothing of wool, to the act of weaving itself, which was maybe the most contentious, with the power loom, which was kind of looming, uh, not to be <laughs> redundant there or make a, a pun, but it was sort of looming over, over all these proceedings, the fact that you could maybe automate the act of weaving, which was this job held by tens if not hundreds of thousands of England's workers at the time. Now, when we think of the Industrial Revolution in England in the 19th century, what first leaps to mind are the large-scale industries like steel and railroads. But making cloth was a defining part of the industrial landscape in those early years. And as Brian Merchant told Seth, coal and steam soon drove machines that would take over jobs held by humans for centuries. All of that was basically put in service of supporting and accelerating the development of the cloth industry. You know, before the Industrial Revolution really takes off, it's already the biggest non-agricultural sort of uh, sector of the of the economy in England at the time. It's the biggest employer of, of, of working people besides agrarian labor. And it's our, and so England is exporting this stuff all over the world. It's, uh, you know, mostly wool before it begins. And, you know, when the big story of the Industrial Revolution is is cotton, how it how cotton takes off and Manchester develops as this industrial hub, largely to produce tons and tons of cotton goods. Well, well, give me an idea of the, uh, you know, the, the size of the phenomenon we're talking about here. I mean, uh-huh. I've seen looms that are operated by hand. You usually have a couple of pedals to move the uh, the strings up and down. Yeah. And you, there's a shuttlecock that you throw back and forth. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I have some idea how long that would take to make, say, a square yard of cloth. But these steam-powered or water-powered, in any case, powered looms, how much faster were they a factor of two faster or 50% faster? I mean, was this a big deal? 
It was a big deal. Um, and, you know, again, it, dep- it depends on which machine we're talking about. There's probably anywhere between six and ten of, like, sort of key uh, machines that are driving the industrialization. The, but, so the, the power loom, I believe it was, it could do it six times faster. Um, and, and therefore, you could eliminate the need for, for five workers to produce uh, the, the same amount of cloth goods. So it's... It is a it is a factor of multiples, so it's not it's not just a little bit faster. A lot of these cases, it's a it's a large jump in the productivity, and you know part of the reason that it that we see that jump is because the machines are sacrificing a lot of quality too. So this is really the beginning of the era of mass production and all that that entails. So where a skilled cloth worker would, and it's important to note, using machinery. They were using machinery and they would often have sort of um, the most up-to-date machinery in their homes or in their workshops and they would have modded it and sort of hacked it to their own specifications. So they were very skilled technicians themselves, most of a lot of these workers. And it, it, it was about two things. It was about sort of automating parts of the process that those machines could carry out and it was about organizing those machines into a uh, sort of factory situation where you would divide the labor using the machinery and so those two forces in tandem were what really drove the the jump in productivity and, and mass production you you mentioned doing this sort of work at home yeah uh, as if that was the way it had been done prior that you know if you had a loom in your home it was obviously manually operated. You didn't have electricity or you know steam power in your home, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but now suddenly the production could be centralized. You could have a big factory in town and and have a lot of these looms, uh, the new ones, and uh, you know you sort of I don't know mass production. I mean it's it's yeah. the beginnings of the industrial revolution. I can imagine that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. But it- from the standpoint of the people that were you know were weaving the cloth at home. It was really a big deal. Maybe you could describe what that meant for those people. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that was uh, really disruptive to, to, to their way of life. And there's a couple important things to note here. And that's that, so as you said, most of these folks who have been working in the cloth trade have been working either, you know, at home or in small shops. They have a lot of autonomy over their lives. Um, you know, one sort of resonance that I, you know, increasingly sort of uh, underlined as I was researching and writing this book was the fact that, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we we kind of shifted back to a work from home situation, right? And then now that lockdown is over, and we've seen all of this protest among workers who really don't aren't eager to go back into the office, aren't eager to be sort of, you know, watched over and observed and managed sort of on a day on a on a minute by minute basis. And so, if you can sort of think about that, if you're one of those uh, th- those workers who's going like, oh, maybe I don't want to go do a nine to five, five days a week under my b- boss's eye, because there's a lot of unpleasant things about that. You can kind of relate to how these uh, cloth workers might have felt being asked to do that for the first time. So for hundreds of years, they worked with these machines in their homes. They had complete autonomy over their daily lives. I mean, they still had a job to do. They had to get the cloth produced and sell it to the local merchant in in order to make a, make enough money to feed their families. But how they did that was up to them. They could take walks, breaks. They could work at home with their families singing. It was often very pleasant, you know, if not super prosperous, but it was a way of life that was really important to, to many, many people. 
And the other thing that's important is that a lot of times you have this industrialist coming in from either out of town or getting a bunch of money, getting a bunch of capital, getting a bunch of um, resources and saying, I'm just going to do this without community input. And that's disruptive, too, for the first time. It's like, well, where, where does this guy get off, right? Like, we have this nice thing going where we can make it enough cloth so that everybody gets a little cut. The merchant's happy, we're happy, the family's happy, uh, you know, the, the cloth finisher that I then sell it to afterwards happy. It's a nice system. But this guy comes in with the machine without any community input, without any sort of, you know, democratic inclination and just sort of sets up shop and starts taking work away from the community. And to them, it didn't look like, you know, progress, right? As it would maybe to us today, well, that's what we would be told. But to, to them, it looked like theft. Someone was stealing their bread, quote, as they would say. Yeah, and this was, uh, you know, thousands of people, right? I mean, this this was not a minor industry. This was major, so... Uh, Hundreds know, you, of thousands, yeah. Okay, so this is an early example of a labor management uh, problem before labor was organized, right? There, there were no unions, really. Maybe you could tell me why this didn't occur earlier. I mean, the, you know, the Roman Empire didn't have this problem. Yeah. Well, so, you know, there were at various times guilds and uh, there was more uh, sort of informal organizing. But at this, at this time, in the early 1800s, there were laws on the books against forming unions. So you could not form a, a union legally. It was called a combination. They were called the Combination Acts. And they had been put into place in the 1790s, basically as to prevent you know, workers from, from, from getting too much power. And as you see these two trends collide, you see machinery available to industrialists and entrepreneurs uh, you see the framework for the factory emerging as this idea to emulate trying to organize labor, try to get workers to stand at the machines, uh, you know, all day long rather than having that flexible lifestyle that we talked about. And then having no recourse for, for the workers. So if the workers weren't happy about this, about the fact that these industrialists were pushing wages down and that they were sort of, again, stealing their bread, taking the work out of the, fac out of the shops and into the factories they you know they could ask the the factory owners nicely say hey cut it, throw us a bone but most often they didn't listen and they and they could try to ask parliament to to lend them some support which they did from about 1803 to 1809 the cloth workers tried again and again and again and they were continually investigated for violating those combination acts and they were sort of laughed out of the halls of power and eventually you know, all of the regulations that were on the books, there were regulations that said, hey, if you want to be part of this trade, you have to apprentice for this many years. If you want to, you know, produce this good for sale on the market, it has to be of this quality. And the entrepreneurs were just throwing that out the window saying, well, this is a new era, right? This is a new machinery. Kind of sounds like the, you know, the guys from Uber or something saying like, well, we're not a taxi company. We're, uh, you know, we're a, we're a technology company that's connecting a, a, a driver and a rider. Um, no, no. So we don't have to play by the rules. Same playbook yeah. back then. And so eventually all of those regulations, the parliament just throws them out. They say, you know what? You're on your own. Uh, we won't. It was a very, very pro-free market era in parliament. And they were completely sort of willing to throw out all those protections and all those things. So then 
in 1809, after all those goes out, two years later, they have no choice. I, in my estimation, there was literally nothing that these workers could do to improve their situation other than do what they did, which is stage this very ferocious and very popular protest and rebellion. Um, they became Luddites. Well, we'd like to include assistant producer Brian Edwards in our conversation now because he worked closely on this episode. And Brian and Seth, perhaps the first question we should address is why a science show is discussing the consequences of new technology and through a historical lens. Brian? The reason for me, at least, why I think it's important to cover a subject like the Luddites and the history of technology on a science show is because kind of the difference between theoretical and applied science. It's exciting to talk about, you know, the big theories and the big ideas of science, but we also have to look at how science is used in the real world and how the technologies that are developed are affecting people as well. I I think that this reflects the fact that science is not done in a vacuum. If you pick up a science textbook, you might think, you know, what does this have to do with the real world and society in general? And of course, science is one of the biggest influences on society in general. And the introduction of steam-powered machinery in the 19th century, you know, it, it changed everything. It changed everything. And people suddenly, you know, are thinking about unionization and, you know, protection from science. They hadn't ever thought about that before that time. When Brian Merchant described the dawn of mass production, he described this trade-off, this fundamental trade-off. The machines were faster, but they sacrificed a lot of quality. And I wonder if we're going to see a similar trade-off in speed versus quality when we start adopting AI seriously. We are seeing that some AI is producing results that's either kind of just this mishmash of ideas that uh, doesn't make a ton of sense or just this boilerplate that, you know, sounds like it was written as as stilted and as as stuffy as possible. So we certainly are already seeing uh, a lowering of quality when it comes to some of the things AI is producing. Yeah, but I don't think that that's going to last. That's the easiest thing to fix with automation is the quality. So I I think that, uh, you know, we have to confront the fact that not only are we building machines now that can do jobs faster and very soon better than humans, but they're also doing different kinds of things. We've never had machinery before that could replace human creativity. And uh, that's what's scary to me about AI. But it's true, Seth, that in most cases, if you read something that AI wrote, that chat GPT wrote, you can identify it as AI pretty quickly. But I think that's a very short-lived phenomenon. I agree. I think it won't be long until we aren't able to to tell the difference between uh, AI and, and regular writing. And that seems to be the writing on the wall for a lot of the, the warnings that experts are giving us as well. And it's well written on the wall. Up next, what happened when the Luddites rose up in 1811 and why it parallels the Hollywood writer's strike? Well, that sounds like a screenplay in the works. It's Tech in Check on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. When screenwriters in Hollywood went on strike in the spring of 2023, one of their demands was a prohibition on studios using AI to write scripts. Striking actors and writers carried placards that read, No AI and Say No to AI, and AI is soulless, as they expressed fear for their job security. When they picketed in front of L.A.'s famous old Warner Brothers studio to express their anger about their possible replacement by A.I., they probably didn't feel the ghostly presence of striking cloth workers who rose up two centuries earlier on another continent. Before Tinseltown, there was Cottonopolis, the nickname for Manchester, which was the center of the textile industry at the time. But we don't think of Hollywood artists as aligned with the original Luddite movement, because our modern understanding of the term has changed. And that's somebody who is a technophobe, basically. Somebody who doesn't like technology, doesn't get it, hates it, would rather keep it out of their lives. You know, I've, I never got an iPhone. I, uh, oh, he's such a Luddite. So that is sort of the working definition that's in the popular consciousness. It's a derogatory term, right? The real Luddites were, of course, cloth workers who recognized the ways that technology was being used by uh, mill bosses and elites against them and, and fought back in a strategic and organized manner. So those are the real Luddites. The real Luddites organized against factory bosses and the machines like the spinning jenny and the flying shuttle, which had replaced them. Journalist Brian Merchant recounts the Luddite uprising in his book, Blood in the Machine, the Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. Brian, the laborers, the people who were making this cloth, you know, recognized that there were a lot of them, right? It wasn't just one person (laughs) noting that he didn't like the job anymore, but they, you know, they organized and so forth, and they staged uh, industrial actions. Can you describe that? Yeah. So the Luddites are remembered today mostly for their sort of their famous uh, protest tactic. Uh, And it was that it was a tactic. They smashed machines. Right. But but there was a method to what today may appear as madness. And and that's that they adopted this moniker of, of Luddite from a mythical figure, Ned Ludd. The protests began in in the Nottingham area, and there's another famous denizen of Nottingham who stood up for the poor, and that's Robin Hood, of course. And if you say these two, Ned Ludd, Robin Hood, Ned Ludd, Robin, is maybe a riff on that. So Ned Ludd's probably made up. But they use him as this avatar, as sort of this origin story for their crusade, and that's that Ned Ludd was supposed to be an apprentice who was working for a a stockinger, a master stockinger, who didn't think he was working quite fast enough. So he brought him to the magistrate to have him whipped so he would be more productive. 
Ned Ludd didn't respond kindly to this, and he took the blacksmith's hammer and smashed the machine of his discontent before fleeing into Sherwood Forest, like Robin Hood before him, where he gathered a band of, of, of like-minded uh, rebels and industrial warriors. So they use this as their, as their, their origin story, their myth-making, basically. It's printed in a few of the, of the newspapers at the time. But using this as a backdrop, they'll single out a local entrepreneur that they find to be particularly obnoxious, quote, that's their word. And they say, we know that you have 100 of the machines that are, quote, stealing our bread. They've put 400 of our brothers out of work. Uh, Take them down or you'll get a visit from Ned Ludd's army. And if the factory owner complies, all is well. Uh, If he doesn't, then sure enough, the cloth workers will organize themselves into an sort of a army-like garrison. They'll approach the factory, hold up the overseer at gunpoint, slip in and smash the machines that are automating their work. And only the machines that are automating their work. They, they leave all the other machinery that is not being directly used to take their jobs intact. You know, all the other shears, all the other implements of, uh, of the trade. Fine, you can have those. And before they leave, they, they say something like, We've done the work. If you put them back up, we'll have to return, and that time we'll do the whole place. And so they they would do this over and over and over in an, in an organized and tactical fashion, and they became extremely popular. Uh, somebody was standing up for the poor. Somebody was standing up for those that the machinery of the Industrial Re- Revolution was trampling. And so people would come out and cheer them in the streets as the movement grew emboldened. They would cheer the Luddites uh, as, as they made their raids. And for many months, it not only was popular, but it was effective. A lot of factory owners didn't want the trouble, said, fine, you know, let's go back. I'll, I'll, I'll put the prices uh, back to what they were before we started using this machinery, and we can go back to how things were before. I don't want to visit from King Ludd. Maybe this is just being devil's advocate. But, no, please. You know, if I were a worker in one of those mills, right, and uh, I was sitting there all day long operating some pedals and throwing a, a shuttle back and forth, right, I might think, well, actually standing and watching a machine is maybe a, a step up. The, well, the new machines weren't any easier, and then, in fact, they were working faster. It was uh, it was louder, more unpleasant, and more dangerous. So they would go into these. You know, it's not the, it's not the same kind of automation that we would imagine today, which I think is important to hold in your mind because it should make us question just how effective the automation, even when it's software automation and AI and that kind of things going on today, really is, or is this whole invisible world of work really sort of being uh, sort of obscured by by all the shiny promises of of tech companies and so on and so forth but it was the case then so these new machines they require fewer human hands to run but they still require tons of human hands they break down they get caught you know on on pieces of cloth so that one thing that the children are really good at is picking out the pieces of cloth that get jammed in these machines and they don't want to stop running the machines cuz that would slow down production so what happens is 
a lot of children lose their fingers and hands and get pulled into machines. I mean, the the accident and death rate in these factories is extremely high because you have a precarious, vulnerable population working them in the first place, and you have them working full steam. So they're both sort of unskilled and unprepared to use a lot of these machines, and they're being thrown into it sort of around the clock. So it's it's a disaster for decades and decades until labor movements can kind of claw back some of the uh, of the worst abuses and, and get some reforms on the books because yeah it wasn't pretty it wasn't it wasn't as we might kind of think about today you know automating the dirty and dangerous and unpleasant jobs no it was it was just sort of accelerating the dangers of, of the machinery it, they might have been repetitive before but again you were at home you were with your family that it was probably you know not something that you wanted to do all the time but you could take pride in it and you could do a skillful job in the factory, you just were sort of, you know, clocking in 10, 12 hours a day. It's dangerous. You're breathing in. It's, they're not ventilated well, so you're breathing in cloth fibers all the time. You're getting sick. You know, people shrunk during the early decades of the Industrial Revolution because they were indoors, they were malnourished, they were battered by these machines. It was a, it was truly a, really one of the dark, darkest times in uh, sort of our industrial history. Well, okay. But on the other hand, turning cotton into cloth it's not something that can only be done within the geographical confines of England, right? You could set up this sort of a system across the channel in Europe, and I'm sure it happened. I was uh, in a union job, actually, many years ago for the railroads, which was another invention of the British, I have to say, for the English perhaps more accurately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of what was called feather bedding. In other words, there were a lot of jobs where you didn't really need those jobs there. It was sort of like standing around, you know, weaving cloth, or I guess they weren't standing around, maybe they were <laughs> sitting around, but whatever. And, you know, you could argue, and I occasionally would try, you would argue with other, other workers to say, look, you know, this sort of inefficiency, because that's really what it came down to, this sort of inefficiency is going to kill the, the industry, it's going to kill the railroads. You know, in the long term, that's what's going to happen, because it makes them non-competitive, and they have competition. I assume that the, the weavers that are involved, the, the factory workers here, recognize that this was something that might make uh, the UK non-competitive when it came to cloth. Well, I mean, so there's a lot of interesting things uh, that would go into answering that question. And that's it. Again, so there there are no unions at this point. So there is no real feather bedding uh, to speak of. You have this domestic system really does. It is in many ways um, very sort of reliant on the market. There's not a lot of fat. So the, the way that it would work is that the, the merchant would come to your operation with a piece of cloth and say, okay, I need, you know, I, I, I need this, this woven, uh, the, the merchant would come to you with yarn and you would say, I need this woven into a, you know, X large piece of cloth, or I need it with this specifications. You would do the job and then you would sell it back to the merchant who would take it to a finisher to the next part of the line. So if you didn't do the work, you wouldn't get paid. So there wasn't there wasn't a lot of sort of fat to be trimmed necessarily. And I think, you know, by by migrating that work into a factory where you, you know, are, are dividing labor this way, you can make it more efficient. You can streamline production. But I think what this really gets into 
is the question of, you know, who are we tailoring this uh, this conception of who benefits and who doesn't to? Uh, you know, what are we what what, are, what do we want the policies to service? So again, largest base of industrial workers in England are cloth producers. So if you say, well, we should run them ragged and put them all by machines so they're living indoors so that we can reduce the price of cloth so a few more people can afford cloth, you're basically destroying the quality of life for your largest uh, group of working class workers in England. And I think one of the things I'm really trying to interrogate with this book is is looking at, you know, did it have to be done that way? Did we have to immiserate hundreds of thousands of workers in order to reduce the price of cloth? And I would argue if you had included a lot of those workers in the decision-making process, rather than having a few industrialists sort of set up shop and, you know, sort of oppositionally, uh, you know, address them or, or oppose them materially, we could have found a middle ground, produce cloth uh, at a faster rate, improve the quality of life for people who wanted that to be improved. Um, but the problem is, is that there was just no democratic inputs into the system. It was all just being done in this one lopsided way with the people who had the money and the power to do it. Brian and Seth, earlier Brian Merchant said that you had this scenario during the Industrial Revolution when the factory guys would come in quietly, they'd set up shop, and then they'd take work away from the community. And similarly, it feels like advancements in AI are occurring by stealth. We know that very sophisticated artificial intelligence is coming and that it's going to have a profound impact on our lives. There's no regulation. Um, a handful of companies are in charge of what this future will look like, and it feels like they're working in a black box. Yeah, there may be truth to that because that that bears on the commercial aspects of this, right? If you're developing an AI-based machine or whatever it is, you're going to keep it quiet as much as you can to you know, forestall the competition. I'm not against regulation. I guess eventually we'll have to do that, but it's just not clear to me how you get from here to there because, you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, put in regulation so they don't build a machine that really directly competes with, you know, people who write novels or whatever, but you don't really know what the machines will be capable of doing 30 years down the road. And, you know, that's where the danger lies from my point of view. Do you think, Seth, that it would be helpful if we required these companies to have more clarity about what they're doing? So maybe we're not regulating the practices that they can do, but trying to find a way to to be more open and share the work that they're doing. Do you see a way that that could work? I, I wish I could, Brian, but I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that they even know, right? I mean, the, the, the guys who built the first steam engines, they had no idea what the long-term consequences of that might be. They had some, you know, immediate applications like ships and eventually railroads and so forth. But they didn't really know what powered machinery could do 100 years after they invented it. So I, I think that this is, a, you know, it's a just on the one hand, it's dangerous, but on the other hand, it's also very exciting. And that does, I think, kind of, hit at the point of what Molly was saying is it it does seem like this is another situation that is kind of primed to act as as the industrial revolution did where the businesses and the people who are developing are ultimately going to to shape the landscape of what this what this is and not so much the the Luddites as many machines as they break. Coming up, people vent their rage against the machines with modern day smash sessions and 21st century lessons from the Luddites. It's Tech and Check on Big Picture Science. 
Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. We've done an impressive job continuing to invent our replacements since the days of spinning machines and steam engines. The current level of automation in our workforce is increasing. For example, at some semiconductor factories, when the few remaining humans employed there punch out for the day, work doesn't stop. Fully automated manufacturing lines run by robots run all night without the need for light or temperature control. Or bathroom breaks. AI promises to take automation even further. Tasks like researching, writing, or summarizing, once thought to be the purview of humans, are being routinely assigned to machines. Angst across many job sectors is on the rise. So before journalist Brian Merchant shares the lessons of the Luddite movement for today, here's a chance for you to blow off steam vicariously about the relentless encroachment of automation, whether it's big machines or smartphones. Brian has been organizing a series of publicly attended smash sessions. Well, it's enough to make the original Luddites proud. I have been holding these events that I call the Luddite Tribunal. I gather four or five writers, activists, authors, uh, journalists, and um, tech workers to consider the merits of a given technology versus its impact on society. So we have this kind of roundtable discussion, and at the end, uh, we sort of thumbs up or thumbs down. And if the technology gets the thumbs down, then, well, as the Luddites did so long ago, we, we smash it with a, with a hammer. <laughs> A video of one event in a club shows men and women coming on stage and taking sledgehammers to a cell phone and a printer, which, by the way, is among the machines most often receiving the down vote. Things like the ring camera were immediate thumbs down just because it's this surveillance device. It has a lot of contracts with local police departments. It's made by Amazon, which few people are big fans of right now. So. Things like that are pretty quick to, to get thumbs down, but I'd say that, you know, it, interestingly enough, it's kind of outside of the purview I intended, but like the printer, which is this big piece of technology that just people hate to deal with on a, like just a user level, you know, you who doesn't get angry at their printer, right? Like it's not printing correctly, it's out of ink, and not only that, but it's just like it's a big piece of technology that's very satisfying to smash and the catharsis you feel when you smash these things that are frustrating in your daily lives and that's a little bit different but i imagine the luddites 
really did feel a great deal of catharsis when they're smashing this machine that's taking their jobs, right? It's like liberating and it's fun. So we tap into some small sliver of that. Well, maybe we all feel a little better now hearing that, but we face big challenges as we grapple with what it means to increasingly automate our lives by replacing workers with machines. Brian Merchant shares how the past can inform the present as we consider how to keep humans in the loop. I kind of wonder whether today, at the beginning of the 21st century, we're about to enter another sea change in the roles of labor versus, if you will, management or any, the, you know, the people in charge. It's not that a machine will be able to do my job because my job is more cerebral, right? It's writing or whatever. It's something that uh, isn't you know, a repetitive action that can be simulated by a robot. But how do you see that playing out? Because the usual response to automation is to say, well, all that's doing is it's driving the labor market up to you know, more skilled or more creative work. And after all, that's a lot better than doing something very repetitive and dull that a machine can do without complaining and do it in the dark. So <laughs> is there still a problem here? Or do you think that the problem will get worse when we have machines that can think as well as my next door neighbor? <laughs> well, I, you know, we're still a long ways off from you know, from machines thinking as well as anybody's neighbor, um, I guess, depending on the neighbor in some cases. But in most cases, uh, you know, we're, we're, ha- we're in a very similar situation, actually, where it's important, I think, to remember that, you know, as much as all those entrepreneurs and industrialists wanted to sort of sell the idea that they could automate these processes so completely, it just wasn't the case. You still had to have a lot of people in there in the trenches doing the work. Today, you know, is interesting. And again, it's another parallel to the industrial revolutionary times when people started getting interested in these questions and the fears on a cultural level is because some did fear that, you know, the machines would be coming for for more, quote, skilled or more, um, you know, upper class jobs. And today we're kind of seeing that too, right? ChatGPT can produce uh, text, it can produce articles, you know, I think most people aren't worried that they're going to be as good as a journalist or as good as a podcaster or as good as a, um, as a, a screenwriter yet. But the fear is much the same, and that it's that these machines will be used by people with access to, to power and resources to uh, gain leverage over the workers. And that's what we saw happen with the writer's strike, right? Like We saw the studios say, well, we want to hold out the possibility that we can use AI to write a script. And the writers knew that it's not going to be good. It's not going to be the next Spielberg movie. It's not going to be the next Scorsese movie. But it might be a template for the next Marvel movie that then they're asked to sort of rewrite. And they, the studios can charge a reduced fee for that. And they can cut the writers out of the residual process. And they can, they can sort of write more quickly more, more things. They can, they can change the model. And the writers... That was one of the things they resisted. They didn't want to cede that level of control over the process to the studios. So they kind of did, uh, in the tradition of the Luddites, they said no. They said, we will not allow scripts to be written by AI, by the studios. The studios will not have the right to do that under this contract. And they held that red line all the way to the very end. And they, that was in the final contract. So now studios can't create original scripts. Writers can experiment with AI, but it's if it's on their terms. 
Um, so that was a very sort of Luddite sort of response to, to sort of what are the modern sort of threats posed by automation. So we're facing, a, it is a brand new uh, arena that we're wading into. And I think anybody who does any kind of work, whether it's creative or service work, or, you know, as you said, sort of rote repetitive work, it needs to be aware of this, uh, this new environment. So Brian, what really motivated these people who were bringing in the machines, the automated looms, and so forth. I mean, obviously, it's, uh, you know, they can make more cloth, but they can also make each piece of cloth will be cheaper, and therefore they can raise their profit margins. Uh, How does that compare with today, where people are trying to put, you know, if you will, smart computers in charge of the factory? Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting point of comparison. So, there were true evangelists back even in the early industrial revolution who we might today consider sort of business futurists or something like that people um like andrew Err, who wrote these business texts about the 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 factory really extolling the virtues and saying well you know pretty soon we could have these fully automated um factories that are just that don't require any human work at all and you know they're motivated you know, largely by, yeah, by this idea of maximizing profit and, you know, minimizing the uh, the, the amount of human labor that has to go into it. Um, and they're really sort of taking Adam Smith's ideas to an extreme. You know, Adam Smith's Wealth, Wealth of Nations had this idea that you could, you know, divide labor ever more efficiently and produce things ever more efficiently. So they were really hitting the gas on, on that idea and this idea that it was virtuous and good to do so. So, but today, it's a very similar impetus, right? Whether you're a factory owner who's aspiring to build this a dark, quote, dark factory where there's no workers and you can produce cars or, or appliances or electronics without the input of a human worker, that's still the long, simmering 200-year-old dream is to be able to do that, to minimize labor costs and to maximize production of stuff. And, you know, to some extent, that's the dream of the people who are using AI, too. I mean, it's been sloppy, and we haven't seen a lot of great use cases for, um, you know, good AI-generated content quite yet. And it seems that every few weeks now, most recently, Sports Illustrated was caught pumping out, you know, AI-generated articles. And they're just so bad that you kind of look at them and say, what are they even thinking here? But you know, you eventually maybe they won't be, and it'll be a real, uh, a, a real, a real question of whether or not the management of a media company wants to automate its its processes. So yeah, a lot of the same dynamics are are still at play today because we haven't really changed the mechanism uh, by which we develop technology. Right? It's still we give a few people a bunch of money. In this case, it's VCs and Silicon Valley founders, and say, hey. You know, make something great and and then see what happens. And, you know, then sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work so well. And sometimes we're left fighting a rear guard against a company like Facebook, which is spewing disinformation and sort of uh, letting dictators do all kinds of nasty stuff or Amazon that has these uh, labor issues uh, so much so that, you know, now workers are rising up to unionize it too, just like workers rose up 200 years ago against the tech titans of their day. So until we sort of 
stabilize uh, or figure out a way that we can more, you know, democratically integrate technologies that impact everybody's lives, we're going to keep seeing these frictions and these bumps and we're heading for a big one right now. Well, finally, Brian, what would you say is the enduring significant legacy of the Luddites? I mean, is that just all past tense or can we apply that to the kind of problems we have today and tomorrow? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question. Um, and although the Luddites were eventually crushed by by the state, you know, armies were mobilized against them, and you know, the the crown rolled out propaganda against them, which is one reason we still think of them in these derogatory terms. They still succeeded on a great many fronts. Um, for the biggest one is probably that they inspired a, uh, a a reform movement to continue to to fight for uh, more workers rights and so out of their out of their movement which was this real sort of uh, lightning rod for gaining what scholars might call class solidarity where the working class kind of recognizing that they have all these shared set of concerns together and that maybe they if they work together they can they can fight to improve their lot out of that came a reform movement that pushed back against the combination laws, got the got the right to organize, the right to unionize, um, eventually led to, you know, chartism and other uh, movements that would eventually sort of get uh, something closer to democracy in, installed in, in England. So there was, there's the, the labor movement front that I think they were successful in helping to ignite. And there was the cultural front too. By staging this huge rebellion, they were able to bring to the forefront this question that was called the machinery question um, at the time. Like, what will the, you know, impacts of machines be, of automated machinery, of mechanization be? Is this something we want at all? And it was appealing, you know, not just to the working classes, but to the romantic poets who I also follow in the book, you know. uh, Lord Byron is a huge defender of the Luddites, probably their most famous defender. Percy Shelley, big, uh, big fan of the Luddites, who see sort of something noble in their struggle and also fight for them. And then ultimately, um, a lot of scholars have argued that, you know, Mary Shelley, who was around these guys at the time and who lived in London um, while the Luddite uprising was, was taking place and was writing Frankenstein while it was kind of slowing down, drew a lot of inspiration from the Luddite uprisings and and, and channeled that in, into Frankenstein. Frankenstein's monster, in many ways, kind of echoes the, the, the Luddite struggle and the, and the Luddites, this force, this, this thing that's been created by a reckless, you know, power, a reckless inventor then, then wants to shun it off and not take care of it. Um, so, you know, you, there's an allegory there for the, the monster being the working class that's now sort of enthralled to these tech titans um, who have created their conditions and, and refuse to answer for them. And eventually the Luddites and the monster both revolt. Um, so that clearly has resonated uh, throughout the the uh, the ages since uh, we still have Frankenstein inspired science fiction. Um, we still have this very salient tech critique at our fingertips, and it you know it waxes and wanes and it comes and goes. But now is another moment where there's a lot of interest in the Luddites and what they stood for and their ideas because. Uh, you know, AI and, uh, and, and software automation and even robotics uh, and, and mechanization all stand to sort of inflict many of the same dangers and conditions on the working classes today. 
Brian, do you plan to write your next book or are you going to outsource that to something with flashing lights on its exterior? <laughs> It'd be worth it as an experiment, right? Uh, maybe I can get it to read it, at least. <laughs> Terrific. Brian Merchant, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Yeah, this is great. Appreciate it. Cheers. Brian Merchant is the Los Angeles Times tech columnist, and he is the author of the book Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. We're looking at the big picture now, and one of the big picture questions in this episode is how the adoption of AI will change the role of work in our lives, and will it necessarily displace not hundreds of thousands of textile workers, as was the case 200 years ago, but millions of people. What are your thoughts, Seth and Brian? I think that the point is that, in fact, whatever the consequences are, they will be worldwide. We no longer have, if you will, a closed market like uh, England was at the beginning of the 19th century, right? Whatever was happening in the cloth manufacturing world then could be contained to England because outside of Manchester, there wasn't much competition. But that's not true anymore. And so the facts are that you have to deal with this, you know, as it comes at you and to say, well, we're just going to uh, regulate it from the beginning to make sure it doesn't have any adverse consequences means that, okay, uh, you don't like what the machines can do. We'll just do it in this other factory in Asia somewhere. And, you know, you're just going to be stuck with the consequences. I don't think we can take that road either. Seth is right. And I do think that at least right now, the question is the same. It is about jobs. It is about who's being displaced from jobs. And we're probably going to have that argument for several years from now. The advantage, I think, to the issues that are being faced now with AI is that it feels, at least to me, a step earlier than the machines being put in the the textile factories. We saw the, the Hollywood writers being able to strike and take action before AI was implemented in their workplaces. And I think we will see several instances like that where workers see things looming are much more adept at organizing at this point in time and will maybe make some preemptive changes that will, if not stop it, um, at least like Brian had said in the interview, allow the writers to be the one to fiddle around with AI rather than the studio bosses replacing writers with AI. This show is assembled thanks to the technical prowess of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and the human labor of assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. They are not robots yet. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that searches for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode, that looks at how automation continues to change our relationship to the machines, is called Tech in Check. <laughs>